Good morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, Father, we come to hear your word. We come that we might hold fast to the confession, which is our hope without wavering, for you are faithful. We thank you that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that no one has seen you, but the one who dwelt in your bosom, he has explained you to us. Now we come to hear your message from your written word, and we pray that you would build us up with confidence and courage, and we pray that you would convict us where we need changing. Bless our time. For the glory of God we pray. Amen. The scripture reading was a little different today because I want us to see a pattern. I've been stressing it, but I want us to see it. So when you come to the last eight chapters of the book of Matthew, you come to the last week in the Lord's life on the earth. So 25% of the Gospel of Matthew is spent on this last week. And this last week, uh, well, it has a lot to say. We can't look at it all. And I developed a chiasm that takes us from chapter 21 down into chapter 24. And I can't explain the whole chiasm to you. It's just that I want you to see, I want you to understand that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, came into the temple, and he cleansed the temple. And then you follow the controversy that took place in chapters 21, 22, and then in 23, Jesus denunciates the scribes and the Pharisees. Then he says to them, your house is left to you desolate. In chapter 24, he goes out of the temple and he crosses the Kidron Valley and he ascends the Mount of Olives and his disciples come and talk to him. It is the same thing that happened with the first temple, with Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord came into the house and filled it so that the priests could not minister. And uh, this service then went on for several hundred years. And Israel and Judah were unfaithful to Yahweh God. And so Yahweh God came in judgment. And in Ezekiel, you see the judgment the glory of the Lord comes out of the house and lifts up and goes up and hovers over the Mount of Olives. Do you see a pattern? We're going to look at the center of the chiasm in the book of Matthew. And from there, we're going to proceed into, if I can find my right book, we're going to proceed into the book of Colossians. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. And so you have these, these both ends moving up to this peak, this point, if you will, in the chiasm. And it's a very familiar story. Verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach 
the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to anyone. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose, the numeric standard says likeness, the word is image, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. We uh, are going to have a new Supreme Court justice at the end of June or the beginning of July. And I saw a little thing on the White House lawn where she was talking. And she said, uh, it took one generation to go from segregation to a justice. Now, a black woman is a justice. Well, I personally don't have any problem with a black woman becoming a justice. But I do have a problem with a black woman becoming a justice who doesn't know what a woman is. Because she said in the hearings, someone asked her to define woman, and she said, I can't. Well, then how does she know she's a black woman? The issue in Matthew in the middle of this chiasm, in this week, is the issue of image. Whose image and inscription is this on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Okay, if it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. We pay taxes, and usually this is how this parable is used, but that's, I mean, this, this pericope is used, but that, that's not the important aspect of it. We pay taxes. And we gripe about it. It's too much, right? As one person has said, if God charges 10%, then no kingdom on earth should charge more than that. They should charge a little less. Amen? And we benefit from what our government does for us. They do a lot of terrible things, but they do a lot of good things. And if you came and drove about down my road, you'd be happy you pay taxes for your road. <laughs> I don't pay taxes for my road, and that's what I got, a non-road. <laughs> the issue is image. So the emphasis is the part that is a little more silent. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. God said, let us make man according to our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over all the cattle and over everything that creeps on the earth and God made man in his own image. And the image of God made he him. Male and female made he them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion over the fish, the birds, the cattle. 
God created a whole earth. And he had a sanctuary called the Garden of Eden where he came to meet with men. And he's stuck in that sanctuary, image bearers, Adam and Eve. And of course, an image is to reflect the reality. And so when you walked into the garden and you cannot see God, you can see an image of God. And there they are man and wife, standing there, how? Say it, naked. They were naked. All right, Judge Jackson, look at that. What is a woman? Of course, there's a whole lot implied in that image. And so Adam and Eve, were given directions into the garden and directions on how to extend that throughout the earth. Extending, showing off who God is. They failed and they were cast out of the garden. God flooded the world and started a new creation. The Garden of Eden was swept away in the flood just like everything else. He didn't reappear. He started a new creation. He didn't have to recreate the earth. The earth was there. He didn't have to recreate the heavens. The heavens were there. But everything had been swept away, and it all grew new. And Noah was in charge of that creation. And when you come to chapter 11, you can see that that creation failed. So God started a new creation in the person of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and finally Jacob and his 12 sons as Israel. And God made a new garden of Eden called the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was completed and consecrated, God came into it. His glory filled the house. But... That sanctuary was also violated. And so, God destroyed it and made a new creation called the temple, Solomon's temple. Huge and beautiful and magnificent. And God came to live in it, his presence, his name, in the glory cloud. And they failed God. They sinned and they went after other gods. And so God departed, and God destroyed that temple. And then the empires took over Israel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. There was a temple rebuilt, but it wasn't nearly as big, but it grew over time, and it got bigger and bigger, called the Herodian Temple. But when Jesus came in the beginning of his ministry to the Herodian Temple, he cleansed it because they had defiled it. And three years later, he shows up again on Palm Sunday. And according to Mark, he took a look inside and then he went back out and he came back the next day. And he entered the temple and he upset things. And we've talked about that before. We don't have time to talk about it today. It was an enactment that things were going to be destroyed. So when you come to Matthew 21, he enters. In Matthew 24, he departs after a huge denunciation and saying the blood of all the righteous will fall upon this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias who was killed between the temple and the altar and he went out and he sat on the Mount of Olives. And then he told the story of what was going to happen. And it's the story that's a huge controversy today. Churches can't agree. People in churches can't agree. Are we supposed to agree? The answer to that is yes, we're supposed to agree. And since Jesus prayed for unity, unity will come one day. 
Jesus' prayers are answered. His prayers are not unanswered. They will be answered. And we will all agree one day. And if you just get in line with me, we'd all be in agreement. But at the end of what he has to say in Matthew 24 is, after he says, you know, you see the stars and the sun and moon, the, the sun's going to grow dark, the moon's not going to give its light, the stars are going to fall to the earth, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then what you're going to see is the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. That's what the verse really means. And you'll see him at the right hand of power with glory coming on the clouds. And then he's going to send forth his messengers and he's going to collect the elect from the four winds of heaven to the other ends of heaven. All will be collected. And so he says, learn a parable. Because they want to know, when are these things going to be? Learn a parable. When the tree puts forth its tender branch and grows leaves, you know that summer is near. Near means near, not far away, not 2,000 years away. Near means near. The Son of the Man is right at the door. It means right at the door. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, we've just taken a panoramic view of the Bible, and I've used the word creation because that's exactly what happens. And if you would just, in Matthew 24, look at the cross-references in your Bible back to the Old Testament, you would know this is figurative language. And what happened is Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him and they were decreated. The temple was destroyed. The powers of Judaism were destroyed. Heaven and earth were destroyed. Figurative language of sun, moon, stars, that kind of stuff. And Jesus' word comes true. Now, this is important. Now, back to Matthew 22 then. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? He made them in his image. Everybody in this room is stamped with God's image. We are an image bearer. We're made to reflect who God is. Render to God the things that are God's. God's not playing around. He expects his image bearers to image him. Now think of this. Jesus, the eternal son of God, he's creator. We're going to read about that in just a second. He's existed forever. But then God did something that's impossible for us to understand. God marched into time. God doesn't exist in time, but he marched into time in the person of Jesus by taking on human flesh. Jesus was made in the image of God. Jesus, this person walking around, when you watched his eyeballs roll, it was time for eyeballs to roll. That's what God would do. When you watched him smile at the proper time, he smiled. That's what God is doing. He was the perfect image bearer. When he spoke, he said only the things God says. When he worked, he does only the work that God does. He does nothing else. 
He says that in John several times, the things that I say are the things my father says. The things that I do are the things my father gave me to do. If you move back a few centuries, if you were a son, you didn't get a choice in what to be. You did what your father did. We have a choice today. Jesus was the perfect image bearer. And at the beginning of the Passion Week, Israel did not reflect the image of God. At the end of Passion Week came a new creation where one man rose from the dead as a new creation bearing the image of God. And you and I are in him to do what? to reflect who God is. That's what Passion Week is about. Taking down one creation called Judaism that failed and rising forth in a new creation called the church which cannot fail because the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 has, uh, it, it's a church of a group of people have, that have not seen Paul. They don't know Paul, except that Epaphras told them about Paul. And Epaphras came and gave them the gospel, and God opened their eyes, and they responded in faith, and a new local manifestation of the church universal was born in Colossae. And Paul writes to them, and the first chapter all the way into chapter 2, verse 5, is an introduction, and he tells of his thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. He's thankful for the thing that God has done because they've come to faith and they love the saints and they have hope in the gospel. The hope, by the way, that they have, true as it may be, is not that they're not going to go to hell. That is not the point. It's true. They're not going to go to hell. The hope they have is the kingdom hope. The kingdom is God's new creation that ultimately will issue forth, come to consummation, where there will be no more unrighteousness, no more sin. And Paul's thankful that they have been brought into Christ and into Christ's kingdom. Look at verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is God's objective will. What does God want? You become a new Christian. You don't know everything yet. It takes a long time to get to know stuff. And God has a will. After all, he made you an image bearer to reflect who he is. You want to know how to do that. Okay, here's what we're praying. We're praying that God will make known to you his will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Okay, so you find out what this huge will of God is, and this is the way you start to live. And then what? God is pleased with you. Wait, 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 wait. You mean God might not be pleased with one of his own? That is a true statement. And when God's not pleased with you because you're not walking in a manner worthy of him, he gets out the paddle. He does a little disciplining. Now, notice this terminology. 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does that make you think of? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion over it. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge. This is a new creation, this new work that God is up to. He's torn down the last creation. He took away the capital building, the temple. He took away its leaders, the sun, moon, and stars. He turned out the lights of that creation, and now he's making a new creation. It begins at the end of Passion Week when he dies and he's buried and then he rises as new creation. Hang on, we'll see that. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness is a word that means to bear up under because this, this kingdom is spreading all around this globe. But there's lots of people on this globe who aren't in that kingdom and they're opposed to us and they bring trouble to us and life brings trouble and people get discouraged and they say, oh, I don't know if I like being a Christian or not. We've had plenty of millennials who have left this church and no, 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 no. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They did not bear up under whatever it is they didn't bear up. And they didn't have patience. That is, somebody hurt their feelings, somebody offended them, somebody rubbed them wrong, and so what did they do? They ran. Instead of having long emotions, patience. The biggest reason people leave churches is what? Interpersonal conflict. But he's praying for them. They'll know God's will, they'll be fruitful, they'll have endurance, they'll be patient with people. And then here's the kicker. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you see something there? through a sweep of the panorama of the Bible that clicks. Yeah, it's called inheritance. Israel was in Egypt, and Israel went out of Egypt in a deliverance, and they walked through the wilderness for 40 years, and they came into the promised land, and each tribe was given its section of inheritance in the promised land, and each of those tribe sections were divided down to your family, and you got your plot of land in the promised land. Giving thanks, because God's qualified you to have a share in this inheritance with the saints. But of course, now, Israel's been brought down. It's not the Holy Land. No, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 tells us it's the whole earth. The Beatitudes tell us, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. No, the share that's coming at the end of the consummation of the kingdom is you're going to have a part of the earth. It's going to be your part, my part. Maybe I'll have a paved road by then a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he brings up this redemption language in verses 13 and 14. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us. What did he do for Israel? He delivered them from Egypt and transferred us, caused us to stand in the kingdom of his beloved son, When God gets a hold of somebody, he takes them out of the kingdom of darkness and he puts them over here in a kingdom of light. That tells you the kingdom's already here. Some people think the kingdom doesn't come till the very end. It's here, it's not consummated. There's a lot to happen in it still, but it's here. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that is the Christian message, isn't it? Egypt was a picture 
Israel was in bondage, under slavery, crying out in trouble. Humanity is in bondage, under slavery to sin, looking for worth and happiness and value and pleasantry in life. But they're under bondage to sin. So males try to become females. Females try to become males. And if those two don't please you, you can try to become a dog or a cat. Who knows what you'll try to become? And it's all acceptable now. What is it? It's darkness. It's sin. So, Jesus came along and he redeemed us. He paid the penalty for our sins and he bought us out of that darkness in whom we have reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins. Of course, we were hostile to God. And what's happening across our land and even in the church is a bunch of people who are darkened in their mind and they think they know better than God. What do they worship? They worship corruptible man. As it says in Romans, they did not glorify him or give thanks to him. But they became foolish in their speculation and their darkened hearts were minded, were blinded and they made images in the form of corruptible man and birds and animals and creeping things. Across our country right now, we don't worship animals. Well, I'll take that back. Some of you dog lovers sure do. No, across our land, we don't worship animals. What do we worship? Human beings. Oh, God made me male. Oh, I, I feel female. I know better than God. We worship. Here is, we're made to be image bearers, but we've taken this image and we've defiled it and we now worship not the God of the universe, but ourselves. So look at verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us. He caused us to stand, to have a place in the kingdom of his beloved son. Beloved son, of course, is a messianic title. Jesus' place. In whom, in the beloved son, we have reconciliation, the forgiveness of our sins. So over here, we're against God, and over here, God's against us, and Jesus comes, and he pulls us together through death and blood, and the penalty of our sins he takes on himself so that we're drawn back together with God. Our sins are forgiven. We're no longer hostile. We want to bear the image of God. We want to be an image bearer, and we want to do the will of God, what God wants us to do. That's what Paul's saying. That's what I pray for, Paul says. We pray for money, broken toes, hospital visits, health. We need to change our prayers and pray like Paul prayed. We've lost 25 or 30 millennials over my time here. And all of them have money and health. But what they don't have is the knowledge of his will. And they're not pleasing to God. And that's not how we pray. We need to pray that way. That's how Paul prayed. Now, having spoken of God, then comes this huge statement in verses 15 through 20, which is very famous. Some people think it was a song, a poem that Paul adapted into his writing, but we can't prove any of that. Maybe it was. It's truth because Paul is using it, but maybe Paul himself just wrote it. 
After all, he's inspired. Maybe Paul just wrote it. And, he, and here it is. And it has two sections to it. And this is key. One section is he's creator of the universe. The other section is he's creator of the body, the new life. If you mess up one, you will mess up the other. If you think evolution is true, then you say, well, no, these first few verses, I don't believe that stuff, but I believe the last couple of verses that are about salvation. How can that be? If you can't believe the first few verses, then you cannot say the second few are reliable. No, it's all one poem, all one truth. It is constructed in, we don't have time to talk about its construction, but I'm going to read it and you should hear the construction. There are two parts. Here's the first part, starting in verse 15. And the New American Standard has not translated according to the Greek. They've translated to make it a little easier in English. But picking up, picking up the idea of the, the, son of the, the, the beloved son, then verse 15 starts not with and. It says, who is who, the beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, was Jesus born the first of creation? No, that's not what the word means. This word firstborn, it can mean that. If you have uh, lots of sons, you have a firstborn son. He's the primogenitor, and he's the one who will have a double portion of the inheritance. He becomes the head of the family. That's the way it's being used here. He's the firstborn of creation. He's head over all creation, and he is the image of God. He was an image bearer, and his image was so perfect that when he walked on the earth, when he did anything he did, his facial expressions, his movements, everything about him was divine. This is how they came to know God. You and I know this by revelation written down in our book. We didn't see him, but the apostles saw him and they were witnesses. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You think this earth does what it does, and all those planets do what they do because of the laws of nature. Well, you can find laws in nature, and they help us to work our way through life, but here what we're told is Jesus made everything, everything. And they're made for him, just like any image bearer is made for him. We're made to reflect who he is. He made us for him. You know, when you go out and build a project to make it just the way you want it and it doesn't turn out that way, what are you? You're a little upset. But Jesus didn't make any mistakes. He created everything. And he created the angels you can't see. He created those realms in the heavens that we cannot see. And this God that we cannot see, well, he bears that image. He's the image bearer. And he holds all of it together. It's for him. That's the point. Jesus is creator. So you work your way through Bible. You start in Genesis chapter 1. There's creation. It has a garden where God meets with man. And then we get this picture working all the way down. God tears down one creation and brings up another creation. Tears down a creation, brings up another creation. This is the work of Jesus. 
Well, Jesus didn't exist until he was born. But we talk about Jesus because, because he existed as the eternal Son of God. He didn't exist in bodily form until he was born. So we use his name Jesus to talk about things he did in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, he wasn't Jesus. He didn't have a body yet. He wasn't a human yet. But here Paul is saying, this is, this is who he is. Combined in this one fleshly body is this God, and he is man. Now, look at verse 18. He switches topics. You know, we could, we could spend a long time on 15, 16, 17 just talking about creation. 18. He is also head of the body, the church. He's also head of the body, the church. Well, you know, we understand that language. We all have heads, and we know that when our arms move, it's because our head up here is telling it to. Signals are sent. The way it goes. That's how the church is. He's the head. And he signals. And away we go. And the word body is used because we understand that kind of language. But he explains to us, it's the church. And he also is head of the body, the church. Now we've got to change the translation. You'll see that it matches up above then. Who is? Who is the image of God? Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. So that he himself might come to have first place preeminence in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. All the fullness of God dwells in Him. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in the heavens. So, who is the beginning? The firstborn. This time, firstborn is the progenitor, the first one, the first one who came from the dead. Here's the new creation. And in what he did, in his death, what Passion Week speaks to, is bearing sin on a cross, your sin, my sin. So that reconciliation takes place between God's people and God. That's what Jesus did. That's what Passion Week is about. Comes into the temple, end of the week, He's out of the temple because in 40 years, it's gone. In 40 years, Judaism's gone. No temple, no Judaism, no religious leaders. You can call whatever you want to today. It doesn't exist. No, it's a new creation. It's the church. It's you and me. And it's all done by Christ. And so Paul wants a certain response. I'm a little bit over time. Hang on. It won't take too long. Verses 21 through 23, Paul is looking for a certain response. Christ created the universe. Christ created the church by his death, by his blood, and he's brought us into this body, the church. Here's what he says. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. I talked to someone the other day about the states that are allowing girls and boys at age 14 to transgender through hormones and physical operations. And he got angry with me. I said, it's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? I said, well, you know, aside from the Bible, you just look at how somebody's made and you know what they are. I can define a woman. Maybe I should be judge. 
Well, mistakes happen. You know, there are those people that are XXY and XYY. What about those, Craig? Well, those are anomalies. It's a very small number. But when you look, you can tell who's who. Well, maybe they just have feelings inside. They know they're not a man, they're really a woman. They know they're not a woman, they're really a man. And I said, uh, well, what if I have feelings to be a pedophile? Well, that's different. Well, they come from inside. No, people are hostile to God in mind. And they're engaged in evil deeds. And they self-perpetuate. The way they think drives them this way. And the things that they do drive them this way. They're stuck. They can't get out. They need a new creation. Notice verse 22. You were alienated, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, mind you, make this, hear this. It is not you, it's y'all. It's plural. The church is going to be presented to Christ holy and blameless and beyond accusation. And what that word present means, it's the same thing that's used in Ephesians chapter 5. It's the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to present you to Christ, the pure virgin. Present means stand aside, stand beside. So here's Christ standing, and a wedding is going to take place, the consummation of the wedding when Christ returns, and a bride's going to walk up the aisle and stand right beside Christ, and that bride is called the church, that's you and me, and there's not going to be any stain, any accusation, not because we've lived perfectly, but we've got a perfect husband who paid our bill, paid our debt. So he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all cre creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He wants you to be established in what we've just talked about. Established is a word for building a foundation to a building. He wants you to be steadfast. Steadfast is a word that means to sit down. You're not on the search anymore. You're not looking anywhere else. You're not on the move. You've taken your seat. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. We're in the kingdom. The kingdom's going to grow. Some people say to me, well, Craig, look around. Looks to me like things are getting worse. Yeah, they are getting worse in the United States. I say, look around. You seen a resurrection yet? Have you? No, you haven't seen one, have you? No, because what we've got to do is take the words of Scripture by faith, not by looking around to see if they're true or not. This kingdom will come to fruition. It will conquer this whole earth. It doesn't mean everyone will become a Christian. It means it will keep growing and then Christ will return. And we will rise from the dead. That's the hope. And so what do we do? We act like image bearers 
so that when people look at us, they see Christ. When we talk, they hear Christ. When we play and laugh, they know it's Christ. That's what it's all about. And on Passion Week, he came in the temple and he did not see image bearing. And at the end of the week, he departed from that temple and he said, one, not one stone will be left upon another. The stars are going to fall to the earth. The sun's growing dark. The moon's not going to give its light. All the host of heaven is going to be shaken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. The kingdom will come to fruition. This is our hope. And what do we do in the meantime? Ha, we be image bearers in conduct, in talk, the use of our money, all of it, the way we treat our kids, the way we teach them, we become image bearers. The way we treat our spouses, we become image bearers. That is the hope of the gospel. We're moving in that direction. He's reconciled us to God for that purpose, and it is that which will conquer this globe. Why? Because Christ said it. Heaven and earth will pass away. It did in 70 AD. But my words, my promise, will never pass away. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for your beloved son. You said it at his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You chose him right then in front of everybody saying, this is Messiah. And you received him into heaven and said, sit at my right hand. Thou art my son. My king's son, today I've begotten him. Today you start your reign. And we thank you that somebody who has flesh and bones like we do, albeit glorified, is seated at your right hand. We thank you though the one who sits there is like us because he came in human flesh, although apart from sin but he was tempted in all things like we are, and so he's sympathetic, so he helps us. He gives us strength. He intercedes for us. God, help us to be his image bearers, even as he came to the earth, and he was the image of the invisible God. We know you because of Christ. Help us to be steadfast, established, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.